I'm Tom Morello, host of Maximum Firepower, a weekly podcast focusing on the music, the moments, and the movements that have shaped my worldview and left an indelible mark on me as an artist and activist. Correct with Maximum Firepower. You and me. This is Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. I'm Tom Morello, and you are listening to Maximum Firepower. My guest this week is the great Matt Pinfield, my dear friend, musical expert. He's been on many radio stations, hosted many MTV shows, uh, and is known as a kind-hearted soul and a great expert on all things rock and roll. This week we're going to talk about the ascent of what came to be known as alternative music, because Matt and I were there. What's up, Matt? How's it going? It's great to see you, Tom. I mean, and and good to be here on the show. You know, it's amazing. Uh, One of the things that you and I have always really agreed on a band that deserved so much credit for the shifting of what happened with alternative music was Jane's Addiction. We and I have absolutely. always agreed on that, you know, Abs- because... Absolutely. I think that's a that's a fine place to start. So let's like paint a bit of the musical landscape. Now, there, now, prior to bands like Jane's Addiction and then what became the more overt revolution with bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam with their commercial success, but there was always like an underground. There was always like a Sisters of Mercy. There was always a, you know, sort of darker bands, you know, new wave bands that did not break through and the, the, the cooler kids were drawn to. I'd like to bring attention to a tour that petered out along the way that but gave the first inkling of what would later be the kind of gathering of the tribes that would be Lollapalooza that would then launch this kind of alternative revolution. It was a tour that was Gang of Four, Public Enemy, and Sisters of Mercy. I was the I thought the only person I knew that was a fan of all three of those bands. When I saw that that tour was coming to, I think, Irvine Meadows, the shed south of Los Angeles, uh, couldn't wait to buy a ticket for it at Tower Records. The tour didn't sell enough tickets and did not even make it all the way to L.A. But the pairing of a hip-hop act, of a sort of avant-punk act in Gang of Four, and this kind of sort of dark brooding sisters of mercy in some ways pointed the way to the future but so let's let's talk for a second about like what was the landscape that bands like jane's addiction and later pearl jam and nirvana reacted against well you know i mean obviously uh what was happening there was because things were you know in the hair metal days you know and that's no disrespect to hair metal uh bands in any way but there was i think it was getting to like be like second tier third tier with a lot of those bands and that's again i'm not I, there's some of those guys have a, a great songs certainly and there's there have been some these guys are there's some really powerful artists but it was the kind of the, the underlying alternative thing it was very us and them in the earlier part of, yeah. of things and you mentioned gang of four like that was one of the bands with their great angular guitar attack of yeah. i mean of andy gill and, and you know and those guys you know i used to go see all these bands at places like City Gardens in New Jersey was this yeah. venue where I saw like, you know, Gang of Four and I saw Killing Joke and I saw the Psychedelic Furs and just so many other uh, other incredible shows. There was that underlying thing that was, you know, people were identified with in alternative music that was going on. And then there were the bands that had gotten really quite big, you know, like The Cure and The Smiths. Sure, who, sure. And R.E.M., right? Sure. So, Sure. So that what happened with the alternative music scene was 
up until around that time, those were probably, and I would use the Cure and the Smiths and the REM as the, as the example, were probably the biggest bands in the yeah. format of music yeah. that was alternative. And, and here's, were, here's let me say here's the thing about those bands, and they were that those are excellent examples, especially like the Cure dominated K Rock out here and whatnot. But with yeah. the Cure, the Smiths, and REM, all great bands, all of whom had very large fan bases but they weren't competitive with like sort of the hair metal bands in a way because the thing that they didn't have that the bands that would later come to overturn hair metal they didn't rock yes they, they didn't <laughs> rock you know like they didn't yeah. they, they didn't check that lizard brain teenage box of kicking your ass they were great and they were glue and they were meaningful and and poetic but they didn't go toe-to-toe with you know, I pick your, you know, I hesitate to even say some of the bands, but you know, for with that entire genre of bands that at the time were holding on the tent poles of rock and roll. You're right. Absolutely. And that's the thing why Jane's Addiction was at that point, there were some people in radio like myself who loved them and fought to get them on the air and met some resistance. I mean, sure. I remember some of my bosses uh, sure. about playing Jane's Addiction and I, uh, of course, broke the rules at the radio station and eventually ended up running the radio station and being yeah, the program yeah. director <laughs> and music director. But at that point, they did, they were like, because they were into things that were a little more jangly, you know, the yeah. guitar thing. That's right. But I had my roots in rock and metal and, right. you know, punk. So, yeah. and also, you know, loving things like, you know, like you mentioned hip hop too. I mean, I got, you know, it's interesting how a band like Killing Joke turned me on to Grandmaster Flash, the message. Uh-huh. Like I went to see them one time and they were like playing in a boombox and we were, upstairs backstage drinking their their bottle of jack daniels i was like you know 19 and i'm gonna go what are you listening to and they go the message this is grandmaster fresh it's this new thing and i went and bought it the next day yeah. that's kind of off t- i'm sorry that's a little bit off in the woods but it's all good i'll uh, get back to the whole jane's yeah. addiction thing i saw that it started that was starting to divide the alternative audience but it was bringing in more people yeah that were coming from the rock world that wanted something new and and, and Guns N' Roses had kind of pushed against and, and really kind of helped open that door. But it was really Jane's Addiction. It's funny, you know, we always say, you and I, Tom, how it's not always the guys that do, that, that, are, the, 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 that are the absolute pioneers that get the full credit. It's that's usually right. second or third or fourth. That's right. That's, I mean, that's, that's very true. And, wh- and while, you know, Pearl Jam and Nirvana made historically great records that sort of commercially blew the doors off and, you know, opened the the floodgates for what would become known as alternative music. I think there's three bands that I would like to talk about that were really uh, maybe three and a half bands are really like sort of the precursors to that. And they were Jane's Addiction, Soundgarden and Living Color. I think Living Color was a very, very important band because they had, you know, commercial like Mick Jagger discovered them, signed them out out of New York. They made a record of four African-American guys that played rock and roll that got on predominantly white radio stations. And it really sort of challenged the paradigm until then, for, especially for someone like me, who was an African-American guitar player, there was only Jimi Hendrix and then nobody like ever. And now all of a sudden there was, you know, it didn't, you could look a bunch of different ways and play rock and roll music. Then Soundgarden, I'll tell you how, I, the first time I heard of Soundgarden was I was on tour with my band Lockup. We were playing in Lawrence, Kansas, college town there. The opening band that night was a band called Kill Whitey, made up of all white people, including a great female singer. And she told me about a band called Soundgarden. And she said, it's the greatest fucking music that's ever been played. I just, I remember her saying that. And I'm like, because they sound, they were sort of trying to get in that vein. And she says, she's like, it's like Led Zeppelin, but like meaningful. 
And I was like, well, you have my interest. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. You have my interest. And then I got like the sub pop records was like, holy shit, like this is a, they were unafraid. And with Jane's Addiction as well and Living Color, they were unafraid and unapologetic about embracing the big riffs of the best metal music completely unapologetic but the lyrical spectrum that they dealt with was poetic it was smart it was not misogynistic it was like i could relate to it i could not relate to the demons and groupy lyrics of my favorite bands though the the records kicked my ass but it was these bands that spoke to me musically in the same way but lyrically were an entirely different you didn't have to choose anymore like the like the Clash, my favorite band of all time, didn't have any Black Sabbath riffs in the catalog. You know what I mean? Not right. And, exactly. You know, and now you've got, you know, Pigs and Zan and you've got Loud Love and Cult of Personality that are delivering the effing goods with the guitar riffs, but at the same time have like an ethos that you can get behind. It was amazing. You know, that was the thing about discovering Soundgarden really early on. And they were doing college tours and small, you know, like when I say college, they were doing small town little venues, yeah. which is how I discovered them around the time of Screaming Life. And then when they got the major record deal, Put Out Loud Love, you were talking about how different the lyrical content was and the reaction that Chris Cornell had like with Big Dumb Sex, basically mm -hmm. his yeah. reaction to everything that was being written about, you know, in the hair metal things about like, you yeah. know, about the, it, it was like kind of the anti-misogynistic thing, but he was That's making, right. poking fun. But there were brilliant songs on all those records. Jane's Addiction, same thing. I, I thought that it was, Really incredible that, you know, Perry was writing songs about situations with, you know, his father, you know, yeah. like songs like Had a yeah. Dad, you yeah. know, and there, was, there were just yeah. different things. But it was so influenced by Zeppelin. So yeah. was Soundgarden. And plus, you know, the thing that was always great about Soundgarden, and it got even, every album, it, it got even more distinct, was all those interesting time signatures and changes and different yeah. chords yeah. And, and the different things that they would do. It was just, it was really exciting and different. And those, yeah. that's why... And I love Living Color. I got to see Living Color for the first time. They were on tour at Rutgers University, and they were with the Godfathers. Remember that band that did Birth sure, School, Work, sure, Death? Sure, sure. a great yeah, London yeah. working class, like, yeah, thugs yeah. band kind of yeah, thing of rock. Yeah. And it was a great double bill. And Living Color were amazing, you know? Yeah, and yeah. I mean, they went on like to do all those great tunes. And again, it was socially conscious of the lyrics, like open letter to a landlord. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And and, and also a reaction to the pretty boy thing with a song like Glamour Boys. Glamour you know Boys, I mean? right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there was, a, there was a, a poetic element to it that was missing in a lot of the other stuff. You know, like Chris Cornell and Kurt Cobain and Eddie Vedder and Perry Fair. Like they were like they like you could just look at those words on a page and. You know, there's 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 a depth and there's a nuance and there's a depth and there's an authenticity to them as opposed to much of what we saw in the you know in the decade before, which was literally nothing but a good time. You know, which has it, which, yeah. which which has its place, but it provided a rock and roll outlet for people who thought and for people who you know didn't exclusively dwell in a world of like adolescent boy fantasies. Right, exactly, yeah. and there were and there were so many great songs. Do you have a favorite Jane's Addiction album, Tom? Uh, it, for me, it was nothing shocking. I mean, I love the Triple X. I love the Triple X record. Yeah. But the nothing shocking record, I'll tell you. For me, the with Jane, somebody had given me a boot. This is before nothing shocking came out. Uh, but somebody gave me a bootleg of a live of a live Jane's tape, and that's what I listened to in my car. And I was like, this is it's a punk rock Led Zeppelin. 
And I had never thought of those words in the same sentence before, but it had all of like the streetness of my favorite punk rock bands. And and it was dangerous. And there was like a religious element to it, even with the sort of the Santeria thing. And yet it just like had bulldozer guitar riffs and those because the the people that I loved and respected in the world of smart nuanced lyrics they hated that rock and roll they hated that they was like it was butt rock and you can't you know you can't both like many of my friends you you know were like you can't both like you know the clash and black sabbath and I'm like Oh yes, you can. Yes, you and can. Ja- and, <laughs> yes, we can. And, and, and we did. And, you and Jane's addiction does. You know, <laughs> and they were they. Uh, I had both those in my collection, but they were the ones that put it on record and put it on stage. This is a union town, a union town, all down the line. I'm Tom Morello, and this is Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. My guest this week is the great Matt Pinfield. So there's three other three other bands from that sort of nascent period of uh, that I'd like to talk about. One is Primus. The first time, like I remember seeing a video, like the the phenomenon of what became like the '90s era mosh pits and pogoing and whatnot. I saw a bootleg tape of a Primus show uh, from San Francisco. Or this is really early, really, really early, and. I had never seen a crowd behave that way before. And the music was weird. The music was like, you know, it was like our ears had to adjust to a new kind of way of making songs. And his voice was crazy. And the guitar was playing like atonal, atonal things. And the crowd was going absolutely apeshit like a weather pattern. You know? Yeah, they were. It was it was amazing. Those early shows with them, yeah. they would play in Asbury Park, New Jersey. And we'd go to them. And there was an incredible cult that immediately yeah. surrounded them. Yeah. And you're right. Yeah. It was really interesting. Everything from his vocal delivery, staccato, the different things that yeah. he would do. And you mentioned the atonal sounds. I mean, they were just incredible. And Les Claypool's really an, inter- an inter- interesting musician. He's incredible. I mean, he's yeah. always been. That's why he can play with guys that were in jam bands and he can That's right. play with metal dudes. You That's know right. what I mean? Absolutely. He's always been able to do it. I, I remember reading, reading like Jimmy <laughs> Iovine signed them to Inter- Interscope Records and reading um, an interview with him where he was just, he was just saying like, I'm going to admit, I don't understand this music at all. They sent me a record. I don't know why it's mixed the way it is. It seems to me like the bass is way too loud on this record. But but I've been to their show, and whatever they're doing is, you know, I want to be in business with that. And so, like, it's like, and the same thing, like, with, with Rage and Tool. And when those, when we came up, it was a completely different way that record companies looked at bands than I had an experience before with my band Lockup, where record companies go like, "We see potential in this band. We're going to work with this band. We're going to we're going to pair them with the right producer. We're going to you know like we're going to massage the look. We're going to get the right video. We're going to help package this thing to try to you know hit get play on this and that radio station." And it was a very healthy period because record companies threw their hands in the air and said, "We don't know what's happening. We don't understand what's happening. We just have to let them do this thing that they're doing," and that was what led to those, you know, great, that great wave of records from, you know, Primus to Tool to Rage to Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Chili Peppers, Smashing Pumpkins in that kind of first wave of those alternative bands that's, that were the tent poles of the genre. I think that I equate that to the exact same thing that was happening in England once the Sex Pistols broke through. Yeah. They were signing in England everything. And it was interesting because you'd get an XTC here and a Stranglers there. Yeah. Like a punk rock band, yep. a punk rock version of The Doors. You know yep. what I mean? And, and like XTC being very quirky. I'm just, that era of punk and post-punk and new wave 
was the time before that that something had happened where the record companies didn't really know yeah. what was happening, yes. but they were just signing everything. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, obviously, that's why a band called Butt Trumpet got signed yeah. up. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like like, yeah. any, like when everything started to happen, they're like, well, Nirvana, okay, we'll do this. But what yeah. I do love is they left bands like you alone, and that Absolutely. was the best part. You Absolutely. Know? That was the best, but like, no one claimed to know what was best anymore. Like, like no one claimed, like, there's... Like, like there's a there's a track that you have to be on, and I remember yeah. those early days. Like we went and saw Smashing Pumpkins play at a club called English Acid, and this was before I don't. This was before Gish came out, but like word had it there was this band from Chicago to check out, and we went down there, and 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 you know they were very different from Primus, and they were very different from you know from Soundgarden, but I felt that there was a kinship from what they were doing that was like. They're it's a rock and it's an unapologetic rock and roll band that has just a different, unique and authentic twist on it. We went back to rehearsal maybe that night, either that night or the next day and with with rage and totally swiped an arrangement idea that they played that night and stuck it in the song. Take the power back. The, the part in take the power back where it gets like kind of like dreamy before the head yeah. hard riff. We, we were like we said. Whatever that they did that kind of thing that was kind of like dreamy. Let's put a dreamy part in it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've just seen the pumpkins. Yeah. Do you have a favorite pumpkins in Soundgarden album? I'm, I'm curious yeah. which one. For me, it's Gish for sure for Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah. That to me feels like it just captures like a band that a band with no pretense other than like we're. And I feel the Chicago in it. I feel like the like the there's a chip on the shoulder in it. There's like we've got songs. We've got a we don't look like any band out there. We don't sound like any band out there. And we are rocking in our like Paisley shirts in a way that no band in Paisley shirts has ever rocked before. Uh, with Soundgarden, it's a bit it's a little bit of a little bit of a toss up. But I'm gonna go with Louder Than Love because that was the one that 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 made me hear. That's the in my view that is the record. That they had more popular records later, but that is the record that saved heavy metal music. That record, say, and there were rock bands in Nirvana and Pearl Jam, whatever. Heavy metal music was redeemed by that because it that's a it's a heavy metal record. I mean, it's like yeah, so is Bad Motor Figure, but it has Chris Cornell's it great songwriting, but it's the lyrics that are so key. Like you could strip down some of the songs on Bad Motor Finger and put, you know salty dog or britney fox lyrics on them and you'd be like okay that maybe fits somewhat into in the, what what came previously but but it was his brilliant poetry and his terrifying authentic delivery that really made it something that was super special yeah i mean for me I, you know i love a bad motor finger and i mean it's, i mean yeah. obviously it, i mean i love the i love those first three uh yeah. you know like well actually the first three on a and m and i love the i love parts of the first uh, you know, SST album as well. Yep, you know what yep, I mean? It's yep, like, yep. I Loud Love was a really important record. I mean, when I heard things like Get on the Snake and all the other stuff that was on that, right? I mean, there were so many different riffs. It was yeah. definitely a new Zeppelin thing. But I think what I loved about uh, Bed, Motor, Finger was just all the incredible time changes. And there was just an intensity on yeah. that record, too. Like, I mean, yeah. Outshined and I mean, there's so many things, Slaves and Bulldozers. But I got to also say, there was a period, and you you probably might agree with this, Tom, where I think when Chris uh, started working on those acoustic, uh, excuse me, acoustic songs for the um, album, for the soundtrack of singles, and was doing the yes. stuff that he did yeah. on that on that Ponzier yeah. demo yeah. with Seasons, and uh, I think he he got to a place where 
He was comfortable writing introspectively with yep. lyrics about things that were really going on in his soul. Yep. I mean, not yep. that they weren't before. They were authentic. Yep. I agree with that. I mean, outshine. Yep. I mean, I'm just using those as, as mm. an example. But, I mean, to be able to be comfortable with uh, lyrics like Fell on Black Days and yes, things like absolutely. that nature. Absolutely. Yeah, around I mean, that the was, time. That was a big part of his evolution as a as he became like conf he's like I can work in the world of Sabbath I can work in the world of Beatles and Dylan you know what I mean like he felt very yeah. com comfortable in in all those worlds another thing that I want to talk about is like there was a like the the overlap of some of the bands some of it was healthy competition some of it was um, like like Brad Wilk for was the drummer of Pearl Jam for a while like when they they finished making the record ten um, and Brad and and. Eddie had played in a band called Indian Style in San, Di San Diego together, right? And so Brad and I were jamming. There was no Rage Against the Machine. We were jamming some of those Rage riffs, you know, in, in different rehearsal studios. And he came in to rehearsal. He said, my friend Eddie, who just is singer, he's playing with some of the guys that used to be in Mother Love Bone, and they made this record. Uh, and he wants me to go, like, audition. They were practice rehearsing in England. He wants me to go, like, audition and kind of jam with those guys. And he played me the 10 cassette before it came out. And, you know, me, I'm like... Brad and I are now like working on stuff that later would become Know Your Enemy and Township Rebellion and that and the other. And I listened to him yeah. like, and I was like, Brad, that's not going anywhere. Come on, man. You, we got some good shit right here. And so, <laughs> <laughs> like, what are you thinking, well, yeah, man? It's self preservation. You, you had to do it. You, like, you got to do thinking, something. man. What are you thinking, man? <laughs> so, anyway, so he, go, he goes and spends a, you know, I think it was like two or three weeks that he spent with the Pearl Jam guys there. And and he as, as didn't click with Ament as like players, fortunately for both bands in a way, I think. So then then, then he came back, you know, and, and then rage began to, to find it find its footing um but also like at the, at that same time when we had that first rage demo chris novoselic would sometimes come like come to the coconut teaser which was a bar there and i we, yeah. we finally had our demo and i can't i was so excited to like give it to him i was a huge fan of bleach like bleach was a huge record for me like i smell everyone loves smells like teen spirit we lost our minds over bleach as like being one of the great rock records of all time and i gave him the demo on the patio the coconut teaser and it had my number and said please call me you know help a young band out you know we love you guys we're so influenced by you guys and i never heard from him <laughs> wow unbelievable it's, it's okay. you know it's funny it's you mentioned bleach you know it's it, there's that great story about you know when you listen to about a girl right and you hear the bass line you it's Definitely, totally influenced by the Smithereens, Blood and Roses, and sure, it was the yeah, reason. Sure. You know, and it was because they were driving in that one van where the tape deck was actually broken. They couldn't get the tape out of it, so one yeah. side was especially for you, the Smithereens, and the other side was Celtic Frost. So it was like that kind of combination. <laughs> You've got of it sound. all there, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and that became Bleach, right? And I, uh, but it's it's it, you can hear it. Absolutely. Um, all right. So we, we've got to wrap up soon, but I just want to say, I, I don't know if I've shared this story with you before, but there was a, like, I, how I, when I felt like the page turn and it going from something that some of us were trying to do in, in basements and San Fernando Valley rehearsal places to like the real world was Tool had a signing party at Club Lingerie and Rage Against the Machine opened up for them. There were 25 people in the audience between the, the fans of those of those two bands on that night. And I remember just listening to those like sober and those songs that would later make up Undertow. And we were playing the songs that would like, later make up the, you know, the Rage Against the Machine record and then cut to Lollapalooza 93, where Rage opened the main stage and Tool closed the side stage. And we would be sort of sitting, you know, on those golf carts at the end. Both of us were done with our workday by about you know, 
two in the afternoon, but we're reflecting at that time and we just felt it. We felt like the world had changed and it was now time for our music. And Matt, you were as through all of your work, you know, and, and the you were you were a huge proponent and a big part of helping to make that happen. So we're very grateful. I appreciate that time. You know, it was a beautiful time for me too, because it really it came, what came together was everything that I loved about music and rock and roll and right. it, when that shift took place. And it changed my life as well. I mean, I was programming radio, and I was one of, definitely one of the people that was on the forefront that wanted to support the bands that were getting heavier and changing and kind of and meshing all that together. And it was a beautiful time to, to be in radio and then to be at MTV as well when all of that music yeah. was happening. Yeah, well, it, was, thank, it was great. Well, thank thank you, my friend, for being on the show. It's always a pleasure to to get your insight and to just catch up. The great Matt Pinfield, everybody, thank you very much for coming on. Hopefully we'll have another discussion soon. I'm Tom Morello, and until next time, take it easy, but take it. Let foes of justice tremble. This has been Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. Hear this episode again or listen to past shows right now on the Sirius XM app. Search Maximum Firepower. Oh.